Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's The Wonky Show. We're talking R&D and the Defence Review, admissions, the policing bill, and a new report about H&FE competition. It's all coming up. Banging a drum outside of an office, that is a classic bit of, you know, it's a classic bit of protest um, uh, tactic. Um, I have the joy of working in Millbank Tower when I'm not working from home, and, and you know, it's a daily occurrence. This, I think, has sort of been um, born from the Extinction Rebellion actions of, of the past couple of years. Certainly when I worked at King's trying to get across <laughs> Waterloo Bridge when, when they were uh, occupying the bridge was a, a real experience. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education, news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach, recording from home as usual. And joining me on the launch pad to count down this week's HE policy highs and lows, I have three brilliant guests. On campus, we have Osama Khan, Vice Provost of Education at the University of Surrey. Osama, welcome, and your highlight of the week, please. Hi, Mark. Uh, we got a cat in the family, so we are really excited about it. Lockdown made it very difficult for all of us. Having a new family member running around the house was brilliant. And in London, it's Anne-Marie Canning, CEO of the Brilliant Club. Anne-Marie, your highlight of the week? Yeah, uh, a student that I worked with many moons ago um, when they were in sixth form is now a PhD tutor with the Brilliant Club, which is a moment of sort of full circle um, for me. So yeah, wonderful, wonderful moment this week. Ah, lovely. Um, and from Team Wonky's Southwest Massive, it's David Kernahan, Wonky's Associate Editor, uh, also known as DK. DK, your, your highlight of the week? Well, it's another uh, getting through lockdown when I'm afraid in uh, common with um, many others in the country i get a regular order from my favorite uh brewery and it comes today so i'm quite excited about that exciting i've got one coming tomorrow i just got a text notification saying it's on, it's on its way we start the week with the government's big defense review and the news uh, that the research budget is to face further cuts asama will you talk us through this one please Sure. So there has been a very interesting integrated review report from the government, which talks about security, defense, development, foreign policies, and puts science and technology right at the middle of the international relations. Uh, There are big uh, kind of aspirations. The prime minister is saying that uh, United Kingdom has to position itself as science and tech superpower by 2030. I must say that's really exciting for a research community like ours and across the uh, country. But on the other hand, uh, interestingly, Julia Buckingham, Professor Buckingham, the chair of the UUK, also recently wrote to the government uh, expressing concern about Treasury budget cut, uh, which probably has the potential of us not continuing with our Horizon UK or Horizon EU projects, uh, nearly £1 billion uh, potential shortfall, which amounts to about 18,000 academics, researcher not being in place. So there are a bit of a kind of contradiction, I would say, here, where in one hand, the Prime Minister is saying, um, you know, science and tech superpower, Britain 
just ramp up its uh, research and work collaboratively, collaboratively across the globe. But on the other hand, there are these uncertainty about what do, what do we do with our existing research. I think there is also a little dimension um, in the integrated report about international relations and China becoming uh, a potential superpower, asserting its geopolitics power, uh, and also becoming the largest uh, um, investor into research and development. So how do we work with China? How do we collaborate? We have a strong relationship with them. And how do we reconcile sometimes uh, a bit of discrepancy in our values? Thank you. And, and I think the um, one, one of the things sort of falling out of this review has been the uh, kind of the politics about the, 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 the relationship between China and the UK rearing its head again, particularly in, in the Conservative Party. And it's something we've been tracking quite a bit on Monkey because obviously the amount of relationships and, uh, and business that the sector does with China is, 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 is quite quite vast really and, and little changes of policy and, and attitude can make can make big impacts so i was interested in how um boris johnson appeared to uh kind of warm up the relationship again after some significant cooling and i know that surrey your university does quite a lot of work with china i know has a has a big partnership with huawei and has been on the slightly tricky end of some of these some of these some, some of these tensions over the last couple of years I mean, do you, what what signals do you get as a as a kind of major university in the UK with 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 I would describe kind of significant activity in in China and with China? What are the signals you're getting as part of all this that are coming from the government? Is it is it heading back towards slightly warmer relationship, or is it is it cooling down again? Absolutely, I I do read the integrated review more like uh, uh, heading towards the warmer relationship, which is I think to be honest, as a uh, international university um, uh, and and where we produce research and citizens for the whole globe, that is a, a massive welcome to be honest from uh, Surrey's perspective, and I would say that across the university sector as well. Yes, we do have um, a good relationship in terms of uh, uh, doing research with Chinese partners. Uh, in fact, most of the British research intense universities are extremely diverse community. So, for example, myself come from Bangladesh. My vice chancellor comes from China. Uh, we are a multifaceted international community uh, pushing the boundaries of knowledge by doing exciting research that solves global problem. And there is a lot of indication in the report about solving global po- problems by partnering with the uh, superpowers. And I think that is really exciting. Um, and, and that's a positive step towards the right direction. Hmm. Um, TK, you listened in to Dominic Cummings' appearance at the Science Te- Technology Committee this week. And he had quite a lot to say about um, about all this, and in particular, ARIA, which is why he was was there. Um, what, what jumped out at you from, from all that? Well, I mean, Dominic Cummings is a political sketch writer's dream, really, isn't he? Uh, the seriousness in which he takes uh, what are quite uh, technical points about the funding of innovation and support for scientific development um, is almost kind of verging on uh, self-parody. Uh, the big eye-opener for me, um, when uh, Dominic Cummings took his job in number 10, he set some uh, conditions, things that he wanted the government to do in order for him to feel that he was worthy of working in number 10. Which, you know, feels a little more like um, a foreign policy negotiation yes. than like actually um, somebody becoming a SPAD, which is what we're talking about. So he asked for four things. He wanted the science budget to be doubled. So he's uh, saying like, okay, um, if I work uh, for you, Boris, I want you to spend an extra 11 million 11 billion pounds of public funds in a way I say, 
which, you know, is a perfectly normal thing that happens in all kinds of sensible countries. We then have um, a massive reform of the civil service to allow for a new approach to science funding, which is um, something ARPA-like, which we've eventually uh, got to in ARIA, although he's not quite happy with that, as I'll get to. And the other one was committing to actually leave the European Union. So there he is, a spad in his um, interview negotiation is setting foreign policy, is setting science policy, is setting treasury policy. It's utterly strange unheard of. Yeah. I've never seen anything like it in my life. So um, if, if he's to be believed, we're taking, taking him at his word. I think we have to at this point in that he doesn't really have any reason to lie about no, this stuff at this no. stage. But so, um, I, I mean, that for me was the big, big story from the thing, from the, 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 the um, appearance of the science and technology uh, committee. But the other thing I saw was just how, how deep these ideas about um, innovation and science and technology technology uh, funding models actually go. He is obsessed. This is his big thing. Uh, forget about uh, Brexit. Forget about owning the libs and cultural wars. This is the reason he went in to do all of the things that he did in his political life. Uh, he sees ARIA as providing a space where innovation will happen. He talks a lot about uh, 60s ARPA, which uh, kind of uh, managed to invent a couple of the technologies underpinning the internet in the gaps between massively escalating the war in Vietnam. Uh, so it is nice that, that they can name check. He still wants to see a wholesale change in the way all science and technology he had a strange habit of referring to Ottoline Laser by her first name as if they were best mates, which I would be suspicious of. Um, so he he's obsessed with this stuff. It's like um, a, um, an educational technology keynote from uh, 2006. We're talking about ARPA. We're talking about Linklater. We're talking about different models of innovation and where they're important. And it's just incredible that this man and this... Uh, set of views which in the mid noughties would have been like absolutely commonplace. Everybody was talking about this, everybody was blogging about this, have become the uh, the principal influence on government policy in twenty twenty one. It is utterly bizarre. Mm. I wonder if, I mean, also, he sort of paints a picture where, you know, he sort of describes UKRI as bureaucratic and he wants, you know, ARIA to exist outside of its structures. He also talked about bog standard vice chancellors, which is eye catching. I mean, okay, my first question is who is he talking about there? Who are, these, who are the bog standard vice chancellors? And, and, is there a sort of broader narrative? You know, he's out of government, but look, you know, read the Defence Review, and you made the point on the site, didn't you, DK, that, you know, higher education is, is basically not mentioned at all. But there's a sort of view which Dominic Cummings is 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 laying out there, where um, universities aren't really part of the kind of the, the exciting or important or impactful end of of the research landscape, um, or the stuff that kind of gets you know gets gets conservative voters excited, you know, all the big hardware and and and, and all the rest. Um, I mean, is that you know is, is that by design or is that so? Just that, has that's kind of fallen out of. Um, uh, uh, you know, the, the kind of vagaries and weirdnesses of what Dominic Cummings is interested in. So to go for the, uh, I mean, there's a 
a lot in that question, Mark. So to go for the uh, the um, bog standard uh, vice chancellor thing, he was talking about the kind of people that should be in charge of our area that should be the chairperson, the chief exec, that are setting the direction that ARIA should go in. And he sees that as a scientist. He um, he kind of reeled off um, a list of uh, white male established scientists in exactly the way you might um, expect. And he said at the end of this that it would be a disaster to have um, a bog-standard vice-chancellor um, running this thing. Um, he didn't really give any reason for that, um, but that was what he said. He also said, because obviously this all, you could kind of s- see this um, building towards an almost um, biblical uh, reveal, and it was Greg Clark, I think, who has absolutely no love whatsoever no love for Dominic yeah, yeah, yeah. I, um, I must, I must say that it's, it's, it's kind of quite <laughs> insulting, I would say, to very many vice chancellors mm. who are working really hard to run this massive, complex institution yeah. driving research. But on the other hand, I do understand what he's trying to say a little bit. Maybe I'm trying to find a reason no, do it, in do all it. this put, madness. Put yourself no, on the yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, for example, I think what he's looking for, he's looking for people who will really push the boundary, really challenge. I think in one of the articles I read that he said, if it, most of the research ARIA will do will fail, and if they're not failing, then ARIA is failing. So that's a strong statement. So, And f- from a research perspective, it kind of makes sense because you really would like to take substantial risks to do some research that really solves problems that exist in, in the globe. Now, what sort of problem you're trying to solve? Is it primarily um, security, defense, um, that sort of angle, or whether this is the problem related to the uh, 17 goals that we have in sustainability from the United Nations? That's, of course, something we need to look at. But I think we do need people who are, how can I say, you know, those naughty professors. I think that's what he's looking for. And and to be honest, yeah. not mentioning university is bizarre because we are full of it. <laughs> Certainly. Um, I mean, it's an archetype. It's an idea of this is a creative person, somebody obsessed with science. But you've got to bear in mind that the person who leads ARIA is... They need to be an expert in, say, um, molecular genetics. They need to be um, an expert in zero-carbon technology. They need to be an expert in any other weird thing that ARIA decides to do. And they, that, to me, feels like more a vice-chancellor skill set or um, a really good program manager skill set, somebody who can take an overview of a number of different areas and be excited about the exciting things, but without necessarily being in depth. If you appoint a scientist, a scientist is an expert in their particular area of science. That is what drives them. That is their uh, passion. And I'm always concerned when people are promoted into roles when they can't do the thing that they're really passionate about. That seems to me to be the opposite of what ARIA needs to be about. Absolutely. You're totally right, because we have seen across the sector, so sometimes we end up recruiting the best teacher to be leading on the teaching side or the best researcher to lead on the research side. And we actually, it's, that's not the right thing to do because they are not experts in budget, in project management. If there's £11 billion to invest in research, you need a project manager who really can find the talent and manage the budget. That's not, that's not exciting for a, a math scientist. <laughs> I mean that yeah that is the, the, the quirks the quirks of our you know fantastic world leading university system. <laughs> I mean Amory you, you know about recruiting students more than more than most people. 
Um, how important as a signal is it that the government sends about about the research infrastructure, particularly when, when it comes to Roscoe universities um, or or anywhere else really on on the landscape? Um, you know, how where is this in the in the hierarchy of of how students think about where to where to apply? Mm, that's a really interesting question. I mean, the first thing to say is um, I, I try to avoid the deep psychology of Dom Cummings. For those of us who've worked across um, various parts of the education landscape, I think we learned a few years ago that um, it doesn't get you very far. Um, and, and, and this archetype of the lone genius is, is completely true to type with, with Dom Cummings. Um, I think actually for, for, for those students who are considering sort of progressing to postgraduate research, I actually think this, this could be quite an off-putting idea, this idea of the maverick genius, the, the lone breakthrough. Um, whereas we know most of the really superb research, you know, if you just look at the vaccine, the AstraZeneca vaccine, we know that that comes through collaboration. Uh, and so, you know, the super signal here that, you know, we're after people who um, uh, have breakthroughs singularly on their own um, is potentially not helpful for encouraging folks into, into research. And I mean, am I right in saying, Dika, I seem to remember you wrote about how, how Ari is not going to have any postdocs, or it's, you know, it's not going to plug into that part of a landscape. Am I, am I right to say that? It's very early days yet to say what Ari is actually going to do, but it doesn't look like it is the kind of thing. I mean, there are no links across between Aria and Ukri. There are certainly no links to the Office for Students. They don't seem to be thinking about the idea of studentship, which is really daft if you think about it. I mean, one of the things Dominic Cummings said in the, the um, hearings is the problem that the current system of science funding presents to early uh, uh, career researchers who have got amazing ideas. And he's absolutely right in that. And there is sensible stuff we could do around that to support early career researchers to give them the slightly open-ended funding that lets them establish the area that they want to devote their lives to. Um, and he was quite clear that ARIA is not that. ARIA is something that is, it is, um, the, it's the best of the best. It's the, um, the uh, top gun school of research, if you will. <laughs> right. Let's see who's been blogging for us this week. My name is Mara Deepwell, and I'm the Chief Executive of the Association for Learning Technology. We're really excited to share with all the wonky readers key findings from ALF annual survey about learning technology in 2020. The survey is really exciting this year, particularly because we've expanded to include a special section painting the landscape of learning technology in COVID times. One of the key findings that we're looking at is how the pivot online has impacted on the well-being of staff and students, how budgets have been affected, where have there been cuts within institutions and who is invested in what. We're also looking particularly at the emerging and growing trend of leadership in learning technology, which now 20% of our members have as a key focus of their role. We've released three key reports with all the summary of findings, so openly accessible via the ALF website. Okay, OFS is back talking about admissions this week, and Happy has a new pamphlet all about the topic. Anne-Marie, what jumped out to you? Yeah, it's a, a bonus week for admissions in universities. First of all, we've got um, the OFS Chief Executive, Nicola Dandridge, publishing a blog cautioning universities against over-recruitment. Um, and this was picked up um, uh, pretty strongly by various uh, mainstream media outlets, um, particularly focused in on the word swamped, which I think is a very unfortunate word indeed. Um, Nicola said in a blog that she'd uh, be willing to 
um, you know, ha- have the regulator intervene where she saw this sort of over recruitment that that sacrifices quality. Um, and then the second the second big bit of admissions news is Happy have landed today a fabulous, fabulous set of essays uh, about post-qualification admissions. I have to say, it's one of the things I've enjoyed reading most over the past year. 12 essays, all killer, no filler, great set of perspectives, all of them bring in something interesting, particular highlights for me. Um, there's a, a lovely overview of sort of the grades and exams issued by NFER colleagues. You've got David Hawkins from UniGuys sort of comparing against international admission systems um, and, and a really thoughtful and, and considered essay uh, from the Queen of Admissions, Mary Kernock-Cook, um, where, where she calls for people outside of this sort of nerdy world of uh, HE admissions to be brought to the table to bring a fresh perspective. So I, I really enjoyed reading this. There's a lot in there. Really recommends colleagues across the sector. Mm. So start with the start with the RFS. It's, it's, it's kind of felt like a bit of a shot across the bowels, isn't it? Or, or kind of canary in the coal mine? Because I mean, you, you'd absolutely expect there to be a, a rise in unconditional offers this year. So are they are they kind of trying to get ahead of the fight? Do you think? I have to say, I'm, I'm slightly baffled by this intervention. Um, you know, the, the crux of the issue is that they're, they're seeing universities where offers are being made purely on the predicted grades rather than um, the sort of generated grades that we'll eventually see later this year. We're at this moment in time where schools and colleges are waiting for the DfE to clarify what will happen with, with award um, allocations this year. So actually, we're in a bit of a no man's land right now. Um, I think this response by universities, you know, certainly it's it's not unexpected um, as a response. I think the real issue is that we're, we're seeing um, sort of a moving of, of those application populations across the system. And I think that's actually the issue um, at hand here and why Nicola's chosen to, to publish the blog hmm. and I'm, I'm actually glad you mentioned predicted grades one of the one of the, the highlights of that happy pamphlet for me was the, the mark corver um essay i thought and i mean dk this is one of your one of your pet issues i mean mark, mark corver argues that um as he has in the past the data doesn't support axing axing predicted grades um well he's uh, absolutely right yeah, yeah i mean yeah. i've made exactly the same point on the site on Wonky, um, several times. Um, if you do go through UCAS's own data and you do that kind of, um, number crunching, there is no clear benefit from axing, um, from axing predicted grades from the system. It's another data point. It's a data point that comes direct from the teachers and the schools, which is something that is important in understanding, um, a candidate. And it is something that makes for a system that functions broadly. Um, it does a pretty good job. It's far from perfect, but it, um, I don't see any way in which the removal of predicted, predicted grades is going to make it any, uh, any better. Uh, this round of discussion about, uh, PQA, as you know, it seems to come around every two or three years. It's actually coming around earlier every year, I think. Um, but, um, this actually, this round seems to have stemmed from the research of, um, Jill Wyness. Uh, it's a classic example of the same data being able to tell people, uh, different things. She sees an underprediction of, um, of grades for students from disadvantaged, uh, advantaged, um, backgrounds. There's a little bit of evidence of that, but it's, it is, dwarfed by the sad fact that students from disadvantaged backgrounds tend to do less well at A-levels and other um, equivalent uh, qualifications. That is the massive problem with the uh, system. And the absolute last thing you would want to do to fix that is to make a system that is even more reliant 
on those final exams? I mean, I mean, one 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 of the things reading both the HEPI um, admissions paper, <clears throat> but then also going and looking at the DfE's consultation on this, which is open until May, if folks would like to respond, is um, we're you know, if we look at what is the problem we want to solve. The problem is predicted grades. The problem is not the admission system. Um, and so I'm reading the essay. I'm just, you know, everything comes back to those predicted grades. Um, so for me, post-qualification admission sort of misses the point of the, of the nub of the issue, the thing we really want to change to help young people get, you know, a great start in terms of going to university or, or other destinations if they want to head off to the world of work or uh, or training. I mean, the, you, you also mentioned um, Mary Cook, another friend, friend of the show, Osama, she she had some interesting interesting observations about the you know this debate in itself as kind of the same people having it every every ten years and kind of absolutely desperate for some some new ideas and one of them that she floated was uh you know all the questions she asked really should universities be applying for students rather than the other way around what what do you make of that that's a very interesting proposal um I, I think as an economist I would say that that's probably going to be an odd situation because <laughs> yeah. uh you know if, if there are more uh, demand and less supply I don't know how that uh, come to an equilibrium if we have to apply for students. Um, however, I, I do completely agree with DK that, uh, and, and Mary as well, that predictive grades play a major role. If you think of an individual, once they receive a predicted grade, they start to work towards it. And that's an important thing. And I think to some extent, that's why I'm slightly sympathetic towards Nicola's movement towards cautioning us, because the moment we give them an unconditional offer, you are pretty much telling a learner that no matter how much you would like to learn until July, it really doesn't matter. You have secured your space. So I think to some extent, predicted grade and then ultimately making a decision once the actual grade is out is not a bad thing. So I'm also struggling to understand what we are trying to solve here. On the other hand, I do take the point that the sad truth of uh, ethnic minorities or lower socioeconomic part of the society who are unfortunately, year on year for decades are not performing as well in A-level and that's causing an access issue. So the contextual admission is something that is very close to my heart and I think we should really be looking into it. But removing predictive grade, in fact, as a matter of fact, if somebody understands planning in university, how would we plan student number if we don't have any predictive grades? Because that gives us an indication what would be the year like next year. Um, I think... (laughs) We just need to go back briefly to uh, the Nicola Dandridge intervention in her suggestion that instead of using the arbitrary grades put together by teachers later this summer, some universities have been uh, have been making offers based on the, the arbitrary um, grades that teachers put uh, together at the end of last year. It's just it. If you look at what's actually happening um, with A-levels this year and the vagaries and the stresses that are being placed on applicants, in some respects, unconditional offers are the answer to that. Um, and you would think um, a regulator that has the interest of students at heart might potentially be saying, look, if we've done our due diligence, if we think this is the right student for this course and the, co- and the students think it's the right course for them, why not just confirm those places now and uh, dispense yeah. with all this panic totally. towards the end of the summer? Yeah, I mean, it gives students security in a year where they've had very little security in terms of their education and outcomes. So um, for, for me, that's one of the issues around this sort of post-qualification admissions 
reform. It, it's coming at a time where, you know, we, we've talked about students and we've, we've talked about universities. What about our teachers' schools and colleges? Because I was speaking to a teacher a couple of days ago and I said, what do you think about this? He said, as if I've got time to think about this right now. Uh, he said, you know, it, it's like asking a firefighter um, to talk about polishing their boots. Like there are bigger things that I'm dealing with uh, in terms of getting kids' education back on track. So for me, you know, this, uh, this is actually the most... Um, the most high quality debate I think I've seen on PQA in terms of it's quite lively, lots of people are involved, but the timing is is really not good for, for colleagues um, across the rest of the education system. Uh, and and the, the last thing to say is I think there are a lot of other ideas, smaller ideas that we should be looking at before we think about a whole whole um, whole over over sort of turning of the current system. Um, I'd love to see um, changes like a cooling off period between grades and clearing. I'd like to see schools getting grades at the same time as universities. And do you know what? If you were really worried about undermatching, you were really worried about underprediction, there's a really simple tweak to the system. And that is you hold back places for students who've been underpredicted um, through adjustment. You know, that's available to us and we can make that happen from this cycle if we wanted to. The policing bill has garnered a great deal of coverage this week. And Jim on the site has been highlighting how this might impact on on student protest. DK, uh, walk us through it. So there is a saying amongst home office civil servants at the moment, and they say, wouldn't it be nice at least once not to look like we're setting up an authoritarian state? (laughs) Uh, So, I mean, once again, here we are. It felt um, cloth-eared when it was uh, uh, published after the shocking and absolutely shameful events at the vigil for uh, Sarah Everard. Um, It just looks like it's just in bad taste at this uh, stage. Uh, So on on the site, and I strongly recommend um, you read the article, it's got a lot more detail in. Uh, Jim is particularly concerned about the implication of uh, the restrictions that this, uh, that the text on the face of this bill would put on uh, protest, in particular student uh, uh, protests. You might think this is a strange thing for the government to want to do, um, given that they're absolutely dedicated to free speech on campus. Um, I couldn't possibly comment on that. Uh, so this, even though there's lots of legislation uh, that um, covers this area already, this amounts to a strengthening of stuff against uh, uh, protest. They start sensibly, they talk about stuff like intimidation is uh, unacceptable and that um, willfully uh, causing damage is unacceptable, which we could largely agree with. But then they start talking about serious unease, alarm or, dis- or distress. But that feels like they're actually talking about um, noise. They're talking about uh, noise. They're uh, talking about unpleasant arguments. They're um, talking about the kind of things that upsets uh, kind of ministers and uh, politicians if they turn up a place and there are um, 60 people with um, placards singing songs at them. Now, the Students' Union has got a... Um, a um, an incredible tradition of uh, protest. I think probably all of us have um, been on various protests over the years. And although, although they don't necessarily um, achieve the thing they're protesting for, they are effective because they make it they, they, they make it clear that people are upset with the course of action, that people are concerned about um, a particular group, that people have serious disagreements about public uh, policy. And a lot of this bill looks like trying to shut down that kind of protest, which needs to be a part of public life. Mm. 
Uh, Azama, you, you, you know, you partly run a, a massive university. Did you welcome um, a, a, a kind of a legal crackdown on occupations and, and protests on campus, or do you think that's going to have a chilling effect? Uh, that's going to have a chilling effect, no doubt about it. I, 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 ca- I can't welcome a policy like that at all, to be honest. Um, totally believe in uh, freedom of speech and expression, and that's the heart of university um, ethos anyway. Uh, in fact, um, our our president of the current student union, Lizzie, wrote a couple of blogs with other authors on Wonky as well about uh, free speech and what it means for the students and how some of the um, policies that we have already, like prevent, might be having a little bit of impact on it. And this is probably another thing that's it, it is a chilling situation, to be honest. Um, and, and as a matter of fact, I, w- I was reflecting on Black Lives Matter. There was a lot of movements and protests and things like that. And I'm getting worried that would we be able to have those um, uh, debates and, and the protest and the emotion that comes out of Black Lives Matter if this uh, uh, policing bill is being enforced? So a lot of worry from my side, to be honest. I mean, I personally love to hear about all of our uh, favourite protests. Um, <laughs> I think that would be a great discussion to have. But um, I, I agree with the sentiments already. You know, this is this is sort of very worrying movement. For me, it's the line around sort of serious annoyance. Um, and, you know, I tell you what's annoying, you know, banging a drum outside of an office. That is a classic bit of, you know, it's a classic bit of protest um, uh, tactic. Um, I have the joy of working in Millbank Tower when I'm not working from home. And, and, you know, it's a daily occurrence. This, I think, has sort of been um, born from the Extinction Rebellion actions of, of the past couple of years. Certainly when I worked at King's trying to get across <laughs> Waterloo Bridge when, when they were uh, occupying the bridge was a, a real experience. So um, it is deeply concerning. Um, you know, we can be creative as we want with, with protest tactics. And we always say the action is in the reaction uh, uh, for those of us who used to be involved with student politics. But really, the capacity to make noise on campus will be curtailed by this. And as DK says, I recommend uh, reading Jim's article, which picks apart the bill, um, on the site. Links in the show notes. Oh, one last thing to say on this one. Go on, um, I don't, yep. um, I, I, I don't know if folks saw, but there was a, a piece of polling um, earlier in the week around sort of in, in the wake of the Sarah Everard vigil showing that the, the general public, you know, thought the police had, adapt, had acted um, appropriately and supported that. Actually, there's been some further um, polling today and uh, released by Politico, which shows actually the, the the view of the general public is is much more balanced, and the majority of people from all sorts of backgrounds think think that that it was sort of heavy handed and um, not not needed. So it's an evolving picture as to how the general public feel about protest and and, and particularly in relation to this bill. Yeah, and I guess the other point is that, that there's a bit of a journey still left for this bill, isn't it? I mean, it's got to go through the laws, and you'd expect there to be you know a lot of lobbying from all different sides to to, to water down some of these these proposals, I wonder if the sector should be doing some of that. I mean, it's a it's it's not it's kind of it's not a bread and butter sector for the issue, but you know, I think I think you know there are a lot of friends of HE in in the Lords, and there are a lot of people who who wouldn't want to turn campuses into, I guess the, the you know the, this dystopian view of kind of everyone sitting quietly eating a sandwich on a bench and you know no noise. I mean, jeez, I mean, yeah, I, I I enjoyed making noise on campus as much as the next person. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. If that ever happens, I'm going to leave the campus straight away. That'll be a boring campus altogether if exactly. the students are not raising their voices. It'll be like what it looks like in the prospectuses. Everyone just sort of sitting on, on rugs on the on the lawn, just sort of smiling and playing with their phones. And yeah, Hey, there are quiet forms and introverted forms of, of protest. A classic is the die-in, for example. Mm. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting, right, the point about the Lords, because the Lords has a lot of folks who, who have been elevated to that position because of their incredible campaigning and, and sort of social change records. So yeah, let's see what happens as this thing progresses. And now it's time 
for Mike Ratcliffe and the hidden history of HE. Expanding our universities is one of those things that has been an issue all the way through the history. How do we how do we deal with that? How do we deal with the fact that there comes a point where government needs to expand our universities uh, and think about how it wants to organise that? Now, less so in a market type system, but when we had planning bodies, how should we do that? Now, the biggest set of expansion came straight after the Second World War, where um, they knew in advance that returning students were going to come back, um, either they already gone off to war they'd been off into a variety of different occupations and they were going to want to have higher education the americans handled this through their uh, gi bill um, but we set about just expanding our universities the interesting bit is that we started planning for this in act you know active way in 1943 so before we've even invaded normandy the british university sector is planning to have won the war and how it's going to cope with all the students who are going to come back so excellent planning from the UGC um, and off it goes it works out that actually it doesn't really need to expand the number of universities because most of the universities it's been funding have been really small all the way through the 30s um, again if we think we have trouble now try running a university through the great depression when most of the students have to pay their fees so they've not expanded as much as they thought so they were ready for them all to expand the only difference is that um, the chair of the UGC, Walter Mobley, is persuaded uh, to let the University College of North Staffordshire start. And so A.D. Lindsay uh, persuades him that it would be a really good idea to set up a new kind of university. And Mobley is very concerned about um, how the war has gone, how it's impacted on universities, and he thinks we need new types of students. Uh, and so they're allowed to run a four-year course, predominantly residential, um, uh, an opportunity to have a foundation course at the minute. So it's trying to do something different. And they get going and everyone else starts to expand. And then we go through the 50s, just slowly upgrading universities. So the university colleges become universities. They all expand. There's a bit of a backlash if you think about um, Kingsley Amis and Lucky Jim and his more means worse thing. Um, but generally, this is the idea that we can continue. By the end of the decade, it's clear we need more universities. They accede to a bid from Sussex to set up a new university college at Brighton. But then, um, having got to that stage, they have a pause and think it's probably worth having a think about setting up new types of universities. And then starts this marvellous thing, this bidding competition to have universities. So the bidding competition to have new universities is an excellent and really exciting example of how British university planning worked. They set up a subcommittee. Great and the good come on the subcommittee. They happily uh, sit together and work out what they should do. Now, people have been writing in saying, hello, can I have a university for a while now? So they've got a file already of towns and cities that said can we have a university please so they're ready to go so they've got a, a group of people they can contact and say are you still interested in having a university and they work out what the criteria are for having a good university it needs plenty of land in order to expand it needs to have good access to schools so that staff uh, will come and let their kids um, go to those schools um, it needs to have a certain amount of industry nearby and communications to other universities but there's no kind of fixed uh, idea of what they should do they also don't have a fixed idea of where they should be so they just let the applications come in and and sort them out. So um, different local authorities spring up with ideas and write in, sending in their different um, uh, bits, some from rather unlikely places. So for quite a long time, the one making the running in the northwest was Blackpool. We're going to have the University of Blackpool. Um, that attracted quite a lot of uh, comment because Blackpool was a slightly challenging place. Um, and so people... Uh, you know, had different views on this uh, and the best bit of that is someone who cheerfully wrote into the UGC saying um, I think um, he says I beg to strongly oppose the current suggestion that a university for the northwest of England should be established at or on the outskirts of Blackpool 
A university is supposed to be a place where young people absorb culture and learning, not spivery and paganism. And he goes on to say that he can't imagine a worse place to put a university apart from Soho. Uh, and now it turns out that uh, Lancashire um, starts to move more in the direction of uh, uh, Lancaster itself. Um, they acquire some land at Bellrig and Lancaster gets a nod over Blackpool. But we go through these independent writing in exercises. So there's a, um, a businessman who's driving past Stamford in Lincolnshire. Uh, uh, and he hears that, um, that the people of Stanford might be quite interested in having a university. They're one of the places that had a, a university suppressed in the Middle Ages. And he gets really involved in this. Uh, and he effectively becomes the leading light of this constant bid to have a university for Stanford. And they get quite a long way down the, the thinking. One of the key reasons is that Stanford's uh, got a new bypass, so it's got plenty of land, uh, it's been redeveloped, and you can think about having a university. And there's a whole published report on why it would be a good thing for the University of Stanford to get going. Uh, and these keep going through. So there's a, a bid for uh, a university at Glastonbury. Uh, this nice chap writes in and says it'd be great to build a new university city of Avalon next to Glastonbury um, and create a new university city. Uh, now he doesn't get anyone else supporting him but there on the UGC file is his nice letter and the very polite letter back from the uh, the civil servants of the UGC saying well that's that's very interesting do, do follow up with some more details. So you go through these kind of stages and, and there is a long list of places that at some point are considered to have a new university. Some of whom that's fine, they, get, they go and get their university. So we have uh, bids from Bournemouth, and Carlisle, and Chatham, and Chester, and uh, there's one from Coventry, which is obviously quite successful, but Plymouth, and Salisbury, and Stamford, and Stevenage, and Thanet. Thanet is one of the ones that makes one of the early running again, uh, but in the end is, is passed over in terms of, of Canterbury. So you get this kind of wonderful pick-up of these things. And the files are just great as you go through them, uh, and you get this different information sent to by these people trying to say, well, can we have a university place? So the best correspondence I found on the file is from the Swindon people. So the Swindon people start by this very apologetic letter from the town clerk saying, um, people in Swindon have asked me to write. I'm not sure personally about doing this, um, but, but what's the process? Um, and then he kind of gets more into it and the Swindon say well one of the things we want to do is, is deal with the fact that there's a perception that we're quite a dreary town and a university might be quite good for us so they, they kind of talk about how this might go through and his correspondence backwards and forwards uh, goes on and on over about four years because because they don't quite get going in time uh, and slowly you know it's clear that other people are getting their universities um, but but they're not. So by the end, when it's quite clear that there aren't going to be any more universities, this is this is sad little letter in from the town clerk uh, to the UGC. Um, Please do not groan too deeply when you receive this letter. I'm not going to harass you. I know that nothing can be done until the government announcement has been made about new universities. Uh, and he goes on to say, well, we've, we, perhaps we could use a new bit of land. It might be a better bet for, for our new Swindon University. Uh, and he ends it in a sad little sign-off. Now, please don't toss this into the waste paper basket. Now, the good news is that it was all dutifully considered by the UGC. It's still lovingly kept on the file. Uh, Swindon did not get to have its university. Uh, the cut-off had come and the government had changed its mind on how many universities it wanted. Because at that point, um, the uh, new Labour government decides, that's it, no more universities. Uh, we're going to stop uh, approving them. We've got enough students uh, into the planning period uh, and we'll have no more. And finally, the Social Market Foundation has a fresh report out all about HNFE. Anne-Marie, uh, talk us through what that said. 
Fabulous. Um, this is a report, um, as, as you say, by the Social Market Foundation, uh, looking at sort of the collaboration and competition between higher education and, and further education uh, with, with the title Study Buddies. Um, it, it's actually a, a fascinating report and I'd highly recommend um, colleagues have a read. It interviews sort of 20 uh, further education and higher education principles. And I mean, some of the quotes are just incredible in there. Um, but it, it, it paints a picture of sort of areas of unproductive and excessive competition and, and lots of barriers to, to properly collaborating across those two sectors. Um, but actually underpinning it, a, a, a great degree of goodwill towards sort of trying to build that through more clearly. Um, it, it, it's obvious that there are regulatory barriers to that. There, there are other forms of barriers to um, creating a, a more sort of, yeah, a more collaborative um, and, and functional ecosystem between HE and FE. Um, one of the interviewees um, describes the relationship currently in some areas of, of the country as fratricidal, which I think is mm. um, very interesting indeed. Lots of recommendations, packed to the rafters with recommendations uh, in terms of how these two sectors should collaborate, but also what policymakers should do to make that more possible. Mm. I mean, on a, I mean, as, 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 you're, you're an economist, as you said. I mean, when, when you create scarcity of supply, then you're going to create competition aren't you i mean is this is it the system built for um for competition rather than for, for creating proper port- portfolio provision and looking at where different parts of the education system can work together um yes I, I i do agree with that that when there is scarcity there there will be competition but i think th- we can coexist in a in a nice way so i really welcome this report where there is a lot of good recommendation um, we need to understand that uh, th- there are technical education, there are education where the training part is really needed to be solid, where somebody coming from banking, from industry, from chemical engineering, and training the apprentices uh, in, a, in a fruitful way. And I don't think necessarily higher education create that sort of academic in plenty, whereas I would say that further education definitely have a strong foothold. So I think we need to start to agree that we can carve the market differently and look into how different sorts of academic existing in HE and FE can provide different sort of skill set and education to the community. Um, I, I think, you know, it's important for us to um, set aside some of those competition. I would say that more in the new type of university and creative universities, the competition is steeper. Uh, because, you know, you can well imagine that a very well-established FE um, lately becoming a higher education institution and suddenly creating competition with existing higher education in the sector. But generally, you can make an ecosystem where both of us can work fruitfully for the whole country. Mm. I mean, uh, Amri, you're, you're involved in the, the Bradford Opportunity Area, aren't you? I mean, what's your, what's your experience of how this works in practice? Do you recognise that fratricidal kind of impulse? <laughs> um, well, well, I think one of the the things we're really developing in Bradford is is sort of uh, a plan across the city about how we all come together to ensure better education and skills for young people. Uh, and we know that when people are at loggerheads or, or you know, there's a, a dysfunctional relationship that that doesn't serve young people well. So, so actually in Bradford, I think there's a very collaborative relationship between, um, you know, HE, FE and, and various other providers of training and skills in the city. Um, I think for me, this report and also my experience in Bradford, um, the, the thing I'd really um, sort of highlight is that power differential um, between HE and FE. And, and one of the reasons there's such a dramatic power differential is, you know, FE occupies this space that the report calls the messy middle, where they, you know, they have a, a you know, a, a reduced negotiating power. They have lots of interventions in in, in terms of um, policy uh, and regulation. And so that hinders their capacity um, to really sort of, um, uh, 
you know, negotiate and interact with HE or deliver HE and FE um, in more powerful ways. So um, it, it's interesting the, the the picture changes where you look in the country. I think certainly in Bradford, we've got an increasingly joined up approach between the different sectors. And I noticed David Hughes uh, this morning of AOC was supportive of the a lot of the recommendations and, and the report in general. I mean, he's often an advocate for both sectors working more closely together. Um, I don't. I've, I mean, we've talked about this on the show before, but it would be lovely to see people from the HE side of the equation stand up and say similar things. Yeah, completely. It feels rather one-sided. And actually, if you read the report, um, I mean, obviously there's a selection of quotes, but you, you, you certainly can feel that there are some of those participants who are perhaps more sceptical about the idea of working together or, or don't see the value as much as others. But on the whole, you can see both the vice-chancellors and the principals of the FE colleges really pushing towards the same aim. Um, I think I think the, the, the big trick here is that response to the sort of local skills um, requirements and, and what the labour market is really calling for. Um, that, that for me, is the key link-up where HE and FE working together. I mean, that's, that's the golden land, right? That's the promised land. So it certainly would be refreshing to hear more colleagues in the HE sector speaking up for this agenda. So that's about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes. Or head to wonky.com to find out more about our range of brilliant subscription services, keeping you and your organisation one step ahead of UK higher education policy every single day. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. Or find the feed you need on wonky.com slash podcast. So thanks to Azama, Anne-Marie and DK for joining me today. And for production support by Jim Dickinson, Matt Grogan and the rest of Team Wonky, The Wonky Show is executive produced by me, Mark Leach. Until next week, stay safe, stay wonky.